Welcome to With Maze and Mal, a podcast where two sisters come together to talk about growing up, living life, all while managing a rare chronic illness. We have lots to say and we are finally sharing our stories. We want to acknowledge that we know everyone's experience will look different and everyone's story is valid, so don't think your journey has to look just like ours. We are not medical professionals, so any recommendations we make on here are based on our own experiences and any changes you make to your care should be discussed with your providers. Hello, everybody. Um, It's been a minute again. uh, For those who may be new here, we are Maze and Mal, two sisters living with a rare disease and navigating the world as public health and social work professionals, trying to fix the system as we are living in it. Um, We started this podcast because much like our illness, we felt like our narratives didn't really fit into a box and we wanted our own platform. So here we are. Um, If you are new here, you can go back and listen to some of our first episodes where we dig into a little more about our disease, um, some of the things that we deal with on a daily basis and how we got to where we are today. So thanks for listening. And uh, as you would know, today is Halloween. So happy Halloween. Uh, To provide a visual, I am actually wearing a unicorn onesie currently, um, and I hope that brings you some joy on this festive October day. So, wow, Maisie, um, we have a lot to catch up on. Um, We kept trying to do this episode, but as you all can understand, life kept happening, um, including having to acknowledge that sometimes our health has to be the priority, even though we both lead very busy lives. So Maisie, um, this is actually the first time I have seen your face in about a month. So I know you have a lot to update us on. And we had talked about sharing how we navigate work, school, and our healthcare. And I think this is the episode where we're really gonna start diving into that. The other really important thing that we wanted to discuss that may become another episode where I share my experience also is why it's so important for providers and the medical community to listen to their patients. All patients, of course, but especially those with um, rare diseases who may not have a textbook answer or experience when they're seeking healthcare. And To provide a little bit of context, I spent this week in conferences, um, both in-person and virtual, and some of the things I heard were very alarming for people who have been doing this work um, with young people who are medically complex and, um, you know, need to transition their, their healthcare to adult providers. And one of the the people at the conference basically took away. So what I'm hearing, you know, from a lot of these sessions is that it's important for doctors to listen to their patients. And I'm sorry, but if that's a novel concept to you at this point in time, um, you need to really do some reflecting as a medical provider. And while I understand that, you know, providers have their opinions and are here to give us guidance about our health. Um, That also has to be a a two-way partnership. And so we'll talk a lot about that 
you know, as we as we cover this topic and share our experiences in healthcare. Um, but I just wanted to really preface it with, you know, there is still so much work to be done, especially for those with rare diseases. Um, and so this is where I think we're going to start start sharing our um, experiences with what could have um, been done differently if providers had listened. So Maisie, um, what did we miss? Yeah, so I think it's crazy that like, as I was sort of living it, you were hearing it from the providers at these conferences. And, you know, sometimes providers want to try things that maybe haven't been tried before um, or have a different idea about how to tackle an issue. And I think there's some um, validity to that, but I think if a patient is willing to try things and they continue to not solve the problem, um, then it's it's super important to to start listening to the patient and what their needs are because new isn't always isn't always better. So back in like May, actually, when I had started my new job, um, I was having some issues with my my central line um, at the the site. And I had had similar issues with my last one. And I was like, oh, let's head this off and try to keep it from from getting bad again, because that's how I lost my last one. Um, And with our specific diagnosis, um, central lines are vital to our survival, basically, um, and our nutrition. And there's also limited vascular territory where they can be placed. So with each line that's placed, um, you risk losing that vascular access. So that is why it is so important for us specifically to try to keep these these lines for a long time, Um, which is one thing that providers usually don't understand to begin with, um, because for most people, central lines are temporary until whatever needs to be fixed is fixed, um, and then they're pulled and they go back to living their lives. Um, But for us, that, that is our life. So that's usually kind of a difficult concept for some providers to grasp. Um, so I worked with infectious disease to try to figure out what the issue was. Um, and ultimately back in like May or June, um, we had decided it was probably a good idea for me to get a new line. And she, my doctor was like, oh, this department will follow up with you. Um, and they never did. So come August, I think. Um, I got back in touch with her. Meanwhile, I'm working, you know, 10 hour days, also taking classes, doing all of the stuff I usually do. And um, I'll admit, I am not always the best at prioritizing my health, especially if it doesn't seem like it's that urgent. Um, I usually wait until it is. Um, But so I was playing phone tag with them and, you know, trying to get in touch with somebody and come like August, I got back in touch with infectious disease and my doc was shocked because she thought I had already had the procedure, had a new line placed and everything was kosher. Um, And I was like, nope, nobody reached out to me. Nobody followed up. I didn't know who to get in touch with. Um, So I still have it. It's still causing issues. So she was very upset about that. Um, And so she connected me with the head of the vascular team at the hospital where we go. Um, And he was, he was awesome. Like I don't get it twisted. He was, had all these novel ideas, was very invested in my diagnosis, wanted to learn as much about it as he could. Um, but he's also a new doctor in the field and young and spry and 
um, has has a lot uh, has a lot to offer the fields, um, but also a lot to learn. I think um, so. We tried a couple of things for like a couple of weeks, actually a couple of different treatments um, to try to get my site back to where it was. Um, and it just wasn't working. So we finally decided to pull the line. Um, so for people who have central lines for a very like small amount of time, um, they don't really become, I hope, I hope this doesn't like gross anybody out, but I, at this point, if you're listening, you're probably hard to gross out. <laughs> Minor content warning um, for those with medical trauma, but this is a key part of the story. So yeah, just a fair warning. I'll try to make it not super traumatic. <laughs> um, so anyway, for people who don't have central lines for a very long time, um, they don't have the time to sort of embed in the body and, and stay there. Um, and your body doesn't have time to sort of grow around it and like accept it as part of you. Um, but for somebody who has had theirs for three, four five years, your body really wraps itself around this foreign object, which is good because you don't want it pulled out. However, when it has to be pulled out, there are things that should be in place. One of which is you should not be awake for it. <laughs> um, if you are awake, you should have meds to calm you down. Um, so basically with the combination of him, I think not really understanding the severity of how long I've had my line um, and COVID just backing everything up in ORs and interventional radiology, he was insistent that like we had to take it out in the office. And I was not a fan of that idea. Um, it had, it was super painful. It was really swollen and irritated. And um, part of it was exposed that shouldn't have been. And like, it was, it was definitely time. Um, but I have always been put under, had the one that I had removed and the one that I needed placed placed all at the same time. Um, and and there's also kind of so like the physical removal of it was not not comfortable. Like I, I could feel it. It was painful. He used local anesthetic, but it, like when something is like in your body and it's being removed from your body, you you feel that. Um, so that was concerning. Um, and we had also talked about, I, I know my body and I know that I don't handle those procedures well emotionally. Um, like my line broke one time and the only thing I can compare it to is somebody like chopping off your finger and like dangling it in your face because my doctor, like in order to fix it, he had to cut it. And so he cut it and then literally did that. And I, I burst into tears. I started sobbing and my mom was laughing because she, she doesn't understand. Like that's literally like somebody chopping off a body part and being like, haha, this isn't a part of you anymore. So there's also just like that mental, emotional component of like, this thing has kept me alive and you are taking it out of me. Like, that's crazy. So a lot of screaming, a lot of tears, a lot of deep breathing exercises. Um, my incredible boyfriend was like, by my side the entire time as I was like snotting and sobbing and kicking and screaming. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't great. So that was one area where like, I wished um, I had just, like they had just listened to me. Like I, I knew it was a tough spot because I needed that line. They had a slot for me to get a new line. 
that afternoon, but they needed to remove the first one and they didn't have the time in that slot to do so the way that they had always done. So I guess, I guess if I knew then what I know now, I would have probed a little bit farther as to why that couldn't happen. But when you're in pain and when you know something needs to be done, like you hit a certain wall where you're just like, I don't, I don't have any more fight in me. I really don't. So they removed it. Um, he stitched up the exit site and he didn't want it to scar. So he um, stitched it like fairly tight, but that didn't allow things to like drain and heal the way that they needed to. So it ended up um, getting infected, causing like kind of a hematoma um, filled with like yuck. And it, yeah, that was super gross. Um, and again, like I waited like a week because I was like, okay, like this was a pretty traumatic procedure, like for my body. Is this normal? Is the pain normal? Is the fever normal? Um, and I've, I've gotten pretty familiar with my body and I know signs and symptoms, um, of most things like infections and stuff like that. Um, but this was totally new. This procedure was new. These symptoms were new. And so I was in constant communication with him, which is something that I haven't had with a provider before. So that was, that was actually amazing. Um, I ended up emailing him at like quarter of six in the morning. Um, and he responded within like five minutes. So that was, that was very helpful and comforting. Um, and so I ended up going to the ER about a week later. I had it out on Monday, I had the new one placed on Monday um, and tried to let everything heal and do its thing. And Friday, I was like, I can't tolerate it. It hurts to touch. I went to the ER on Friday. They ended up opening it back up and letting everything drain and it needed to drain. Um, and that was super gross and also dramatic. Um, and they finally gave me like IV anxiety meds and IV pain meds because I was just so wound and tired and scared and frustrated. And my anxiety was just through the roof. So that helps. That helps a lot. Um, and then they ended up having to do some nasty stuff to like keep the wound open and healing like kind of from the inside out so it didn't abscess. And those dressing changes were also super uh, upsetting. I don't like things in my body. I don't mind once they're placed there, but I don't like things put in and taken out of my body continuously, um, which isn't, that's not crazy. That's pretty reasonable. Um, so I was in the hospital for like four days, I think Friday to Monday, um, and they had to do those dressing changes. Meanwhile, like I was constantly on edge about like nurses using proper sterile technique, like people doing tests and stuff that they didn't need to, like being in the hospital is the least relaxing experience. <laughs> like everyone's like, oh, you just need to like rest and relax. And I'm like, no, I need to make sure that these nurses don't kill me by dragging an IV tubing across my bed and then hooking me up to it. Um, so going back to like needing to listen, like we had an agreement that before I got these super gross dressing changes, I would get that anxiety med and I would get that pain med. And that was, that helped me not have to worry about that part of my day um, because I, I really, I dreaded it. Um, and so this doctor, I hope he doesn't like listen to this because he really is a great guy, but like he just, I lost so much respect for him. Um, he came in with his nurse practitioner 
And he was like, oh, I'm just going to like check your dressing. And I was like, okay. And so we started like taking it off. And I thought he was just going to like look at it and like change the like external dressing. Um, And he literally just went ahead and like did the dressing change. I was like, I didn't even know what was happening. And I think in his mind, he was like, oh, I'll just like sneak up on her and she won't anticipate it. And she'll realize it's not that bad. And so he did it. It hurt. I was uncomfortable. Um, And then left. And I had like a four hour long panic attack, like sobbing, shaking, unable to catch my breath, panic attack. Like it's not, if you have protocols in place for how something needs to be done, they're there for a reason, especially if you're the one who develops those protocols with your patient. Like I didn't, I wasn't doing that to like be annoying or like extra or like, I don't, I don't know what the thought was behind it, but like that made it so I could comfortably have that procedure done and not have to worry about it. And like, he threw it out the window and I just, it, it all just like came flooding back, like flooding over me that like, I would not be here if people had just listened to me and done things the way that I knew things should have been done. And had I spoken up a little bit harder or like advocated a little bit harder, maybe I wouldn't be here. And like, that was such a kick in the pants. So it's, it was an exhausting couple of weeks and I'm still, I'm honestly still like bouncing back. I had to go back to the hospital three days a week for like two weeks to have those dressing changes done. Um, And I still got the meds thankfully, um, but they were oral. So they didn't really do as much because again, it's so much harder to get what you need, but um, I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm bouncing back. My new line is okay. Um, But it was just, it was so exhausting. And then trying to well, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, but like trying to balance my work and school and changing jobs and starting a new job and my internship. And it was just, it, it was crazy. It was just crazy. Well, and what's so frustrating and, you know, something I talk about all the time is if a patient says to do something a certain way or requests something or says not to do something a certain way, there's There's a reason for that. And when convenience for the provider is put before our trauma and previous experience, that's enough to damage those relationships. And I've had similar experiences where, I mean, you texted me and said, have you ever had a line removed while you were awake? And I was like, yeah. And it was horrible. And I remember every moment of it. And I was still at a children's hospital. I was, I was in Maine. I don't even remember what year that was. And I remember every single moment of it because it was so traumatic. And so when you carry those experiences with you and providers continue to just discount your entire lived experience, that, that weighs on you. So, you know, the sad thing is like, you're definitely not alone in your experiences, but I think that's what is so frustrating is that people don't understand the impact of, you know, to him, it's a dressing change that, you know, takes however long it takes. But to you, I mean, that's your body, the pain sticks with you, the emotional trauma sticks with you. And like, these are systems that we still have to access. And so knowing that if we have to go in for something, and that's the precedent that's been set is that we're not going to be listened to 
that makes us even more resistant to access those systems when we have to. And one thing you said like really stuck with me um, because it's something that I deal with based on a previous experience that I'll talk about um, in our next episode. But, you know, you said I tend to wait until things are urgent. You know, I don't, I don't address them until then. And I think that's not only because people like you and I are very busy and we're like, I'll just wait. But I also feel like there's an element of that's, that's what it takes for people to take us seriously. Like I sought medical care when I knew something was very, very wrong with my body, but because people don't know what's normal and what's not normal for us, it was dismissed until I was very, very sick. And to the point where it was hard for me to advocate for myself, but that was finally when medical providers listened. So I think, you know, it's sort of like a double-edged sword of like, we try to be the patient that is like, you know, being preventative and letting people know like, hey, something isn't right. But on the flip side, providers don't take you seriously until there's something that's evidently wrong in their eyes. So I think that's important to, to mention too. Um, okay, so you talked about everything you were navigating while you were going through this um, and you're in school right now and you're working and you're doing this internship. So what adjustments did you have to make and how did you advocate in all these places of your life while you were going through all this? So um, I talked about this in a couple of um, posts on my Instagram um, because I'm much better on paper than I am um, just talking about it. Um, but it was really hard. So Wednesday, I'm just thinking about like the timeline. So I had been planning on switching jobs anyway, um, because I needed something more flexible and adaptable to allow me to really focus on my field placement and school. Um, because ultimately that is what's going to like propel my career the way I want it to. Um, and I was just trying to do too much. So I was like looking for sort of an easier job more flexible hours, stuff like that. Um, so I gave my notice sort of in the midst of all of this. And I gave my notice on a Wednesday, wasn't able to go in Thursday because I was in pain from my initial line site being gross. Um, and then Monday, I, I went in Friday and then that Monday I had surgery and I was out the entire week. So I wasn't super worried about like backlash from my job because I was leaving anyway. Um, but there's definitely the issue of like tying your worth too much to your productivity um, and your ability to continue to do things normally, quote unquote, without feeling guilty or ashamed or um just scared, honestly, that there's going to be those, those repercussions, um, for not being able to contribute as much as you were once able, or as much as you would like to be able to. Um, so that was, that was tough. Like there was a definite like emotional component in terms of like worrying that people were like not believing me or talking about me or thinking that like, I just didn't want to go in for my last two weeks. 
so that was tough. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just to communicate, like over communicate. Like I was sending my um, site supervisor and my professor easily like three emails a week, just being like, Hey, this is where we're at. This is my plan. Um, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to like, make sure this gets done in a timely manner. And of course, like, I think the, there's sort of two sides of things. Like sometimes people are like, oh, it's not that bad. Like you're just having surgery. Like you should be back in a couple days. Um, and don't really understand what that entails. Um, and I think that's rare. I think that's more what I think people are saying than what people are actually saying. Um, because what people are actually saying is take as much time as you need, rest, recuperate. We can figure out a plan for this when you feel your best again. Um, and so that's what my professor and my field supervisor said. Um, and I ended up being able to do some stuff from home. Um, my professor had talked about some options in terms of like completing the semester and making sure I get the hours that I need. So really just like being upfront with your communication and keeping everybody in the loop as much as you can. Um, I tend to over communicate. So I was like, hey, surgery on this day. Oops, I got admitted to the hospital. Um, I'm still logging on to our group supervision. You can't stop me. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, I think most of the negative messages um, that I, I felt like I was receiving were more internal than external. Um, and I think it comes from when they, they were at one point external. Um, and I just sort of like held on to that. So I think if I were to like say something to somebody else going through this, like prioritize your health. Like somebody said, you know, they'll post your position before they post your obituary. You know, like we, we are, we are replaceable. Um, and as much as we don't want to admit that, like, we need to take care of ourselves because the people who understand will understand no matter what. And the people who don't, you don't want to work for or have in your life anyway. Um, and I know that's, that's easier said than done, easier said than implemented, I guess. Um, but it's true. It's true. The people who are there for you will help you when you are at your worst and your best. Um, and the people that aren't aren't worth it so yeah well and so much of it I think is because you know you and I know this particular procedure and it's typically pretty low-key but it comes back to how you know we make it look easy and I think for most people especially those not as familiar with the healthcare system like when you say I'm having surgery you know, to, to people outside of this world, like that's the, the, one of the biggest things where they're like, oh my God, like, are you okay? You know, don't worry about it. Or, you know, we don't expect you back or, um, you know, take time or things like that. But for us, you know, we're like, oh, it's just like, you know, not routine, but something that we've gone through a lot of times where we're like, oh, it's, you know, it's located. And so it doesn't, you know, we're the ones with that perspective. And I remember um, when you had your last new line, I was at work and, you know, I was trying to just go about my business and be like, oh, it's just, you know, no big deal. And when things ended up like not going well, because you had your line for so long, once again, 
I remember like bursting into my boss's office and just standing in the door and he was like, what's up Mal? And I just burst into tears and he was like, not good with like criers or like emotions. And he was like, all I have are these paper towels. <laughs> but I told him like what was going on. And I was like, my sister's having surgery and like, it's typically pretty low key, but you know, it's just like not going as planned. And he was like, oh my God, just go home. Like don't even bring your computer. Don't worry about it. Um, so there's even like that secondary of, you know, we don't always give ourselves enough grace of what the other one is going through. And I think that comes back to like the presentation we gave about the sibling perspective of like, I was a, I was like, not a hundred percent like that entire week. And, you know, even just recently, I was talking to someone about the weight of, the trauma when people don't listen to us in healthcare and that, you know, like we're sick of it. We're sick of seeing each other go through these experiences and like that, that's real too. So, you know, it's just, we, we often like, we don't give ourselves enough, you know, grace, I think with the emotional impact of even just going through this healthcare um, nightmare as it is. So um, I'm glad that everything is okay now, and I hope that neither of us have to go through that or anything else um, for a long time. So with that being said, after this um, particular inpatient stint, and I know, you know, for you to be in the hospital, it's been quite a while since you were, what advice do you have for medical providers of how they can improve care for people with rare diseases. And I want to acknowledge that we are very aware of the state of our healthcare system and that healthcare workers are in a very, very difficult time right now. And we have endless respect for most healthcare workers um, that we encounter. We know that people are, are just doing their jobs and for most of them doing the best that they can. But I want to acknowledge that the issues that we deal with when we are in the hospital, these are things that we have been advocating for and about long before COVID was the issue that it is. So I want to just, you know, put that out there that we understand um, both sides of the coin, but there are things that we have been experiencing before COVID. And we can't let that be an excuse for letting people with chronic illnesses and disabilities get a lower standard of care. So what advice do you have, Maisie, moving forward? I think like you said, like you cannot prioritize your convenience over your patient's well-being. I like I know like there there was no good outcome with like the line removal thing. The OR was packed, IR was packed. Um but I would have rather waited a day than go through that. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, just, just listen, like have a conversation, especially for people with rare diseases, like they are the expert. Like I'm not unreasonable. Like if you have an idea to try something that you think might prevent a bigger issue down the road, like let's talk about it. I am an adult at this point and I can make choices about my body. 
Um, and if it isn't going to, if there isn't a significant risk of making things worse, um, I'm pretty open-minded. So I think like, I know I tend to sort of have the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mindset. And I think sometimes that can be tricky to navigate as a provider too, because I think sometimes change is necessary um, and can improve somebody's quality of life without them knowing that it's even an option that's available to them. Um, but I think sometimes things are done the way that they are for as long as they are for a reason. And I think that needs to be respected. Um, and I'm going to kick myself for saying this, but I think sometimes doctors have this air about them that they are the, the best at what they do. There's sort of an ego that goes with it. Um, especially surgeons. <laughs> um, and I think sometimes you need to just set that aside and see the patient on your table that is kicking and screaming and sobbing um, and say, okay, hold on, let's, let's reevaluate. Like, what are we, what can we do? Um, but just listen, like, just listen, have, have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, so important. And, you know, we know that, that people go into healthcare, you know, with, with good intentions, but there's, there's so much to learn. Um, and we still have so, so far to go. Um, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Um, but I think all we can do is, is keep advocating, um, and getting our message out there and the message of so many others that, that have these experiences. So, I really appreciate you sharing your experience. Um, I know it was a, a tough, a tough go, and I hope things are on the upswing from here. Um, so, with that, I I think we will continue this conversation in another episode, and we have lots of things that we want to cover. Um, so, do you have any final final thoughts for our listeners on this Halloween day? I don't think so. Um, I think we had planned on talking a little bit about like finding a provider and sort of having those conversations up front in the next episode, um, which I think can also be fairly daunting um, in the healthcare sphere as it is right now. Um, so I think that is an important conversation to have down the road. Um, but yeah, I definitely like, like I said, I'm much better on the page than I am um, in person or in audio. So if you follow us on Instagram, um, check out my last three posts. They really sort of dig into what was going through my head during all of this and and how hard it it sort of hit. So um, there's there's sort of more of my thoughts in there, but I tried to articulate them as best I could. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's I think that's all I have. Thank you guys so much for listening as always. Great. All right. Well, with that, um, we thank you as always. Follow us on social media. Um, I'm Curb Cuts and cocktails on Instagram. Maisie is the underscore Maisinator. Um, and we appreciate all of you. So stay tuned. Um, and there's much more to come.